Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Marcy Hamilton, where we're discussing religious freedom, uh, the rights of children, and, and First Amendment rights. If you didn't catch part one, that may be a good place to start. Either way, welcome back to our interview with Marcy Hamilton. We talked about abuse. We talked about neglect relating to medical issues. Mm. Another major issue, and one that you've written on quite extensively, involves when it comes to marriage of children, and particularly with regard to polygamy. Right. I mean... One of the biggest problems we have in the United States is lack of knowledge about polygamy, but also uh, its persistence. And it, uh, the, most people think it's historic. Most people think it's long gone. Uh, it was. It really took Texas and uh, its actions with respect to the yearning for Zion Ranch and the fundamentalist Mormons to show the world that there is a very serious problem going on. And what took place in Texas? What took place in Texas is that the authorities entered uh, what was essentially a religious compound, which was not open to the general public. And what they saw was so disturbing that they took all of the children out of the sect and they placed them in foster homes while they did an investigation. Uh, What did they see? What they saw was a bed in the sanctuary, which is where young girls, after they were married to much older men, were required to have sex to solemnize the marriage in front of the other believers. Uh, What they saw were lists of a man's name and the girls that he had already married and their ages. They also saw girls that were clearly underage who were either pregnant or had children already. And so all of that together under any, any other circumstance, if it wasn't a religious group, that group would have gone to jail so quickly it would have been head spinning. But this was a religious group. And so the arguments were raised about the First Amendment and they have the right to do this, they have the right to do that. And Texas, actually, the Texas Supreme Court caved to a lot of that public pressure and they let most of those children go back into the sect. But some of the men were prosecuted and some of them are currently in jail. And the leading person who caused the Including vast majority the head of, of this, the, of the, faith. The, the patriarch of the fundamentalist Mormons, is Warren Jeffs. He's now in a jail in Texas. Now, the irony of this whole story is that it was already well known in Utah, Arizona, and Nevada that he was micromanaging the handing over of young girls to older men for marriage and sex. Even from prison. Before he went to prison, he was the mastermind that would break up families and put them back together, take young girls from their families, and either send them to Canada or send them to these other states. Nobody was prosecuting him. It really did take Texas to step up and say this is utterly unacceptable, and that is the state that finally prosecuted him. And when was that? That was several years ago. So he's been in jail now for about three years. He'll be in jail for the rest of his life. There's actually several states and the federal government waiting in line if Texas ever lets him go. That's one particular incidence where you have an isolated community essentially abusing children. 
is polygamy in and of itself an issue when it comes to children, or is it more these communities? Well, there, there are many, many communities that practice polygamy under the radar, and few people know about them. It is not just uh, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and uh, how do they operate? Why is it that polygamy is inherently dangerous to girls? And it's just numbers. On average, each of us uh, in, across society, there's about an even number of girls and boys that are born, about 50% to 50%. If you're going to have a male who has multiple female partners, he has to keep going younger and younger to get the next partner because they exhaust his equal-aged uh, females. And so he has to go younger and younger. But there's another element of polygamy that also operates, and that so is... So the polygamous system in and of itself has a tendency to, to drive down in age. Absolutely. It's just, just numbers. But what that also does is if you're going to have one man with multiple women and births are about 50-50... That means you've got to get rid of some of those boys because you've got too many boys competing for the female population. And so what many of these sects do is they throw teenage boys out when they become a problem, as many teenage boys do. is just a matter of uh, nature. So they create rules that may or may not be realistic, at least for most of the young men, right. and use that as an excuse to remove them. Right. And so with respect to the FLDS... They're called the Lost Boys, and they are abandoned either in Salt Lake City or other cities uh, in Arizona or, New Mexico, or, or uh, Nevada. The boys are thrown out with no money, no luggage, no education. At what ages? Usually uh, any time after the age of 12 if they've become problematic. They are thrown on the streets with nothing. Many of them become male prostitutes because that's the only trade they have. Many of them have no idea what else to do. There are now organizations that go out and look for them and try to bring them in, try to get them educated, try to catch them up at least to try to get them a GED, try to train them to have a job. But for the many that fall through that net, uh, they're just lost souls. Is it permitted? Can, can I, as a parent, simply get rid of my child yeah. at the age yeah. of 12? That's, uh, that's called child abandonment, and that's just as problematic as child abuse. And uh, the reason that you don't see prosecutions for these kinds of abandonments is because of politicians. And even though these organizations are engaging in illegal practices, polygamy is illegal, statutory rape is illegal, marriage of young girls is illegal, abandoning boys is illegal, all the way down the line, there's still a voting block. They're a voting block, but that's a local issue. What that's about the federal issue. government? Why shouldn't the federal government be able to come in and say, look, you know, you're, maybe you're moving children around or, or abusing in other ways? Well, it took extraordinary pressure uh, in the public square to get the FBI to actually put Warren Jeffs, the head of the FLDS, and responsible for so much abuse on the top 10 uh, most wanted list. It took many of us writing repeatedly and demanding in the public square, where is the justice for the victims? Finally, the FBI put him on a list, but it was clear they weren't spending a whole lot of effort to find him. 
The only reason Warren Jeffs was ever arrested by the federal government was because they happened to see him getting gas at a gas station, and having seen him, they couldn't turn away. It was an accident. It was an utter accident. Um, so many of the women who are formerly part of polygamous marriages and uh, are now advocates against the domestic abuse and the mind control in those organizations uh, were crying out for justice for the women and the children. And the federal government has dragged its feet. Why? Because they feel as though that they got a bad rap when Waco happened. That was a religious group. That was a man who was sexually abusing children for religious reasons. But, but it ended in an inferno. And it ended in an inferno. And um, the federal government has been fearful of going after religious actors since then. Um, it's part of our mass hypnosis, in my view, in which we defer to religious entities, but we don't ask what harm they're causing. It's changing. We're getting a better discussion about it, and children are starting to matter, but we have a long way to go. And how about these communities? Are they growing, shrinking? Uh, the, most of the polygamous, the polygamous communities are holding their ground. Uh, there's not a huge number of them, but there are large enough numbers in individual states where they really do have extraordinary political power. Let's take a specific example. There are specific snake-handling Pentecostal churches where members will hold dangerous snakes as an affirmation of their faith. Right. I could do that as an adult. Absolutely. You, you have every right to do that as an adult. But if I give a snake to my child, am I breaking the law? Yes. If you give a poisonous snake to a child uh, without any kind of protection for that child, you're breaking the law just as much as if you were to give that snake to a disabled adult. Anybody who's vulnerable that you choose to put at risk like that, you're liable for, both civilly and criminally. And my claim that this is an, a, a declaration of faith. This is part of my religious practice. The First Amendment has no interest in your decision to use religion to break the law. According to the First Amendment, if it's a neutral law that applies to everybody, you're bound by it. Just being religious does not get you out from under it. Now, if the law said that the only people who can't harm others with snakes are this particular sect, that's likely unconstitutional. You can't single out one religious sect for negative treatment. But if nobody can do it, you don't get to do it just because you're religious. Let's talk about some other activities where children may be harmed. One involves punishments or some type of corporal uh, scourging. What happens in too many summer camps, actually, is that children are left with a, a religious group, and the punishment may be extremely ex strong for even minor infractions. Uh, there was a camp in Texas that actually chose to discipline its teenage kids that didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do by tying them to a tree and leaving them there overnight. Wow. Yes. It uh, sounds like something out of a, a novel. Well, it was an evangelical Christian camp's idea that this child would never do the, this wrong thing again. Uh, but you also have spankings, uh, hitting, and but often this concept of abandonment. You take the child out into the woods 
and say, you're staying here overnight and maybe in the morning you will be worthy of coming back into camp. Children have died in these camps. And uh, a number of states do not regulate summer camps if they're religious. They regulate them if they're any other category of summer camp. But if they're religious, they let them off. Uh, and so children can truly be at risk in organizations like the National Association of Regulatory Agencies, which is the major organization that deals with certifying camps as safe for all children, work very hard on trying to ferret out the camps where there are religious beliefs that children are, are suffering under. I remember reading a novel or a book about a Native American religion where when you're 13 or 14, when you're becoming a man, they send you to, to climb a mountain and kill a certain animal and you can't back, come back until you've done it. That's a crime. Uh, putting a child in at risk of unreasonable harm is a crime. Um, the problem in most religious sects is they won't turn anybody in if it's consistent with their faith. And so if that child dies or if that child is lost, uh, the family may have to account for it. But often what happens is they don't because they can hide from the law. Sometimes these punishments will be for breaking camp rules. Mm -hmm. There have been instances where children have been punished for showing uh, gay tendencies. Right. Uh, the, the children who are LGBTQ uh, often have problems in conservative homes where there is a faith belief that these children have a choice. Uh, and once again, what we're seeing is the clash of faith and medical science. Medical science is increasingly telling us that this is something that a child is born with. It's not something they have a choice over. Uh, but some faiths are insistent. Right now, uh, there is a trial going on in which there's a challenge to a, uh, Orthodox Jewish tradition, which is that you get treatment for your child who is gay. And the treatment consists of uh, both sexual activity and shaming. And uh, right now, the trial, the question is whether or not the Orthodox Jewish tradition can be held liable. Sexual activity in what sense? In the sense that there may be masturbation, uh, there may be uh, exhibiting genitalia for the purpose of explaining what it's for, uh, but largely for shaming. And the idea is if you can shame the child enough, they will quit being gay. Uh, and they're highly ineffective. The American Psychological Association has come out against these kind of uh, treatment centers, but uh, a number of states still have them. What type of legal protections would these children have if they're going to a conversion camp or a camp that's right. supposed to cure them of their, of their same-sex tendencies mm -hmm. where there's harm involved? Well, the children are protected from neglect, abandonment, and abuse. And it, but that abuse can be psychological. And right, psychological abuse is still illegal in most circumstances. But what we have here is the law needs a definition of whether or not it is a harm, whether or not psychological abuse is occurring in these conversion therapies. And for a long time, conversion therapy got away with uh, treating many children 
because there wasn't enough scientific evidence to show that it was problematic in any way. Uh, the science is caught up now and has shown that conversion therapy not only does not change the sexual orientation of the child, but it also psychologically harms them. So once the medical science caught up, now there's an argument that these parents can't do this. When it comes to getting an exemption, when it comes to not having your children take vaccines, it's not just religion, but it's also philosophy. Well, what we've seen in the United States is that we've had quite a few religious exemptions in many categories. And then there's a push to expand the exemption to include either moral or philosophical objections. And so from where I'm sitting, the problem in the first place is the religious exemption because it opens the door to say, these parents get a pass on harming their child. Once that door is opened, other parents come in and say, well, I don't have a religious reason, but I've got other reasons. And the argument is that if the first one can do it, why can't everybody else? And that's really the start of the problems for vaccination in the United States. It's the slippery slope of the exemption in the first place. We've been mostly talking about the protections and lack of protections for religious practice under the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. There are other laws that are strengthening the rights of parents to exercise their religion, even when it harms children. That's right. There are two categories of laws that are now uh, moving through the states, uh, which are increasing the likelihood that a child will be harmed by a religious parent. The one is uh, one of the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. RIFRA. RIFRA. Uh, RIFRA started in 1993 in Congress. Uh, I actually took the law to the Supreme Court, and in Bernie v. Flores, they declared it unconstitutional. But then Congress reenacted. You were arguing before the court? I did. I did. That was my, that was my first case ever. How did it go? Uh, we won, and RIFRA was declared unconstitutional. Uh, but the religious lobbyists would have none of that, went right back to Congress and said, give it to us again. Congress didn't give them the full range of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but they gave them enough that there is still a RIFRA that applies to federal law. This is RIFRA Part 2. This is RIFRA Part 2 in 2000. But what happened is, is once the court declared it unconstitutional, conservative religious organizations fanned out to all 50 states trying to persuade each individual state to pass a state RIFRA. And we now at this point have about 20 RIFRAs. And what these laws say is that the First Amendment's not enough for religious liberty, that a believer can trump a law that applies to everybody else, uh, so long as uh, there's a substantial burden on the believer, and then the burden shifts to the government and the government may not enforce a law unless it can prove that this law is passed for a compelling interest and it's the least restrictive means for this believer. Strict scrutiny. Super strict scrutiny. Uh, not the strict scrutiny at the court, but a new variety that was concocted by the religious lobbyists in 1993. So they don't have to show that the law is not helpful. They just have to show that it's not helpful in the least restrictive way. Right. Ba basically, what this law is saying is that for each believer, the law should be shaped to their individual faith. Uh, it is the, uh, it's the best example that I can show you of what I call the me, me, me generation, 
we have this belief that you should never have to deal with anybody who believes anything differently than you do and that nobody should be able to enter your private sphere where your beliefs are sacrosanct. What that means is that the law doesn't apply to you, that applies to everybody else. And it is these RIFRAs that have persuaded believers that the law really shouldn't apply to them. So we have seen the RIFRAs invoked in both cases of child neglect, child abuse, and also in cases where you have institutional abuse. All the way across the board, they've been invoked. There's another branch of these state laws that are called parental rights laws. Right. Uh, this is a new development in which uh, religious entities are arguing in the state legislatures for stronger parental rights. And what these laws say is that a parent has almost 100% control over every aspect of their child. Why would you want such a law? The reason is because you want to get around the laws that are limiting you as a parent. The laws that ban abuse, neglect, and medical neglect. These are laws that will inevitably harm children as they empower parents to make decisions that put children at risk. This brings to mind the topic of corporal punishment, mm -hmm. the ability of a parent to physically discipline their child. Uh, and increasingly, uh, we, it's harder and harder for parents to be able to physically discipline their child. If there is any kind of mark that remains on the child, uh, if the child complains about it to anybody else, uh, it can be the basis for an abuse claim. Uh, and uh, in the vast majority of states now, strong corporal punishment is simply child abuse. Is this where these some of these... Um, RIFRA claims are, is being used, or is it more, I guess I'm, 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 I'm just curious. Well, the corporal punishment uh, defenses are really being raised as um, First Amendment or state constitutional arguments, but at this point, for every state where there's a RIFRA, you tack on RIFRA as another defense. I want to talk about how the changes in additional rights for gay couples is impacting what's so-called religious autonomy? Well, I mean, it's very interesting because it was about 15 years ago that the Latter-day Saints bishops, along with the Catholic bishops, coined in their litigation the phrase church autonomy. They have argued that they are autonomous from the law in abuse cases, and now they're arguing they ought to be autonomous from the law when it comes to dealing with same-sex couples and the LGBTQ community generally. Uh, the concept of autonomy is actually antithetical to the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has never used that term to be able to describe any kind of religious liberty. But the statutory developments, the RIFRAs, the parental rights provisions, these actually do argue along the lines of, well, if I'm a believer, I am autonomous from the law. And that's how you get the arguments that we have right now, which are that well, even if same-sex marriage is required and permitted, uh, then I shouldn't have to deal with a same-sex couple as either a business owner or as a government official. Uh, so what is most important about the same-sex marriage decision by the Supreme Court is the impact on the laws in the states that are driven by conservative Christian and Catholic lobbyists which have established the right to discriminate against same-sex couples. So with the additional rights for same-sex couples, certain states are 
given the political capital to give more freedoms to religious minorities? Right. A number of states have chosen laws, for example, that would permit a government official to refuse to hand off the marriage license based on religious faith. We have other states, uh, many other states, that have said that uh, a religious organization or a nonprofit does not have to provide adoption services if the couple asking for the adoptive child is gay. Uh, these are laws that were put in place as a defensive mechanism to the same-sex marriage ruling at the Supreme Court. Uh, it's my view... I might not have to sell a, a, a cake to a gay couple. You don't have to sell a cake. You don't have to cater. In Indiana, we found out you don't even have to serve a slice of pizza to someone who's gay. Uh, these are reactionary laws. Uh, it's my view they are in all likelihood unconstitutional down the line except one. And there's no question that the First Amendment protects the right of all clergy to decline to do any sacrament, including a wedding, that is inconsistent with their faith. Uh, there has been a lot of um, misleading of the public about what the First Amendment requires. One thing the First Amendment definitely says is if you're a member of the clergy, you don't have to perform a same-sex marriage. You don't After have to perform a marriage between anyone who's not in your faith. That's right. Or, or you even don't have to do everybody in your faith. You may not like a couple. You don't have to do theirs either. As a member of the clergy, you choose what sacraments you provide. But for all of the other discriminatory laws that have, been, that have been passed, which really fall into three categories, whether or not you are a government official who's going to refuse to deal, or you are a uh, nonprofit organization, for example, that will not let the uh, adoption process go forward, in each of those categories, I think it's likely that those are all unconstitutional discrimination, uh, but we'll see. All right, for those who are listening for CLE, MCLE credit in California, the code for this interview is 081615. Again, that's 081615. And now back to the interview. Recently, with so much progress when it comes to additional rights for same-sex couples, the topic of polygamy is thrown in. If you're allowing gay marriage, you're allowing polygamous marriage. Right, right. The, the polygamous marriage response to gay marriage is a red herring. Uh, and it, for the following reasons. When you have a polygamous relationship, uh, what you have is one person... And then however many other spouses you, ha you have, they're each a fractional element. And so if you have four spouses, they're each one-fourth value to one spouse. So there's an, an inherent inequality in polygamy that you don't have in the gay marriage that has been pushed. Um, but what you also don't have in gay marriage that you have in polygamy is the numbers that drive the uh, men to choose younger and younger brides that get you into children, and also that drive the organizations to get rid of certain of the boys. So you have the right number of men to a multiple number of girls. That just doesn't happen with respect to gay marriage. Well, just to play the devil's advocate, 
there you're talking about harm that's associated with polygamy in practice, but it doesn't necessarily have to drive from it. For example, let's talk about gay polygamy. There your fractions fall apart. Actually, I disagree. Uh, the equality fraction stays the same. Uh, if you are saying that you have one spouse and they are, you have four spouses over here and each one is one-fourth because there's four of them, you still have the inequality. I think the United Nations has done the best job in describing what's wrong with polygamy, and that is that it is an essential violation of human rights because uh, when you have two adults that are sharing the responsibilities uh, and why we have marriage in the first place, which is to legitimize children and at the same time to ensure that we have stable progression of property ownership. That's really what marriage serves in a society. When you break that up and you have multiple adults involved, those lines of responsibility become blurred. And just like every committee is not nearly as responsible as an individual, when you have more than two partners in a marriage, you have less responsibility for each of the children. And so uh, for the sake of children, but also for the equality of women, because polygamy simply doesn't happen unless it's a man and multiple women. Uh, it's a basic violation of human rights. And we know that from centuries of experience. Well, it certainly has been how polygamy has uh, played out in history. Centuries. And it's also how polygamy is now currently playing out in both the Muslim community in the Middle East and in the smaller communities in the United States. It's a pattern. Uh, is it inevitable? Uh, there may be some relationships which are uh, can be held up to the microscope. Some an enlightened, adventurous pairing. Right, right. Um, but they are the exception that proves the rule. And we make public policy based on the, the likelihood and the tendency of the relationship to serve the larger public good. And history shows that polygamy does not, and that two people who are adults and are mutually responsible for both the household and the children is by far the best scenario for the welfare of the children. The bottom line is that the safety of our children depends on looking at the facts and talking about the facts and not blindly deferring to parents and actors simply because they're religious. Professor Hamilton, thank you so much for walking us through this topic. Thank you. We'll have to expand a little bit more on some of these in another, in another conversation. Happy to. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.